You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Edelman knows just how important it is to be prepared for whatever life hands you. Do you have a strategy to help protect your wealth and your family? Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to learn more about what you need for your financial situation with a complimentary wealth checkup. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And I think one of the most surprising aspects of the self is that it's so easy to construct an inauthentic self, almost passively, almost accidentally, almost well-intentionally, like, and then to wake up and realize how much harm you've done to yourself. Hey everybody, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. So how many times have you met up with a friend for coffee or dinner and the first thing they ask you is, how are you doing? And we all know what we're supposed to say, right? We're supposed to say, fine, good. But what if you're not? What if you're not doing fine or good? What if you're not doing okay at all? What if you're just feeling like it is taking everything you've got to just wake up and get on with your day. For many people who suffer from depression or who are just going through a tough time, it can be tough to share that you're not okay for a whole host of reasons. Truthfully, sometimes it's even more difficult to acknowledge it to ourselves. When people picture depression, quote unquote depression, many times what they see is what we've all seen in the media, crying at the slightest things, not being able to get out of bed, binge eating ice cream. But that's not always how it works. Depression, and there is so much of it in my family, it can also just be as simple as feeling like you're not at home in your own body or you don't know who that is looking back at you in the mirror. And let's face it, mental health issues affect everything from our home lives to our friendships to our careers. According to a recent Gallup survey, people who rate their mental health as fair or poor, which is nearly 20% of us, take unplanned days off work four times more than people who say their mental health is good or excellent. And the most likely demographic to face mental health struggles at work, yeah, you guessed it, women, as well as people under 30. And women under the age of 30 are the most likely to report poor mental health at work of any age or any gender. So what's going on here? How can we face this crisis head on? Joining me today is Sarah Kubrick, an existential psychotherapist. She has dedicated her life to helping younger generations seek change and just understand what it means to be human. You might know her as the millennial therapist on Instagram. She's got over a million followers, and her new book is called It's On Me. 
Accept Hard Truths, Discover Yourself, and Change Your Life. It details her own struggle with self-loss and what she's learned on her journey to discovering who she really is. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited and honored to be here. Oh, well, thanks for saying that. I was struck by the title of your book, It's On Me. Millennials and younger generations in general, I think, get a bad rap for blaming their problems on things that they feel they can't control. The economy, the pandemic, older generations for not doing more about climate change. Is that why you chose this title? I think I chose this title. I wanted something that was a bit provocative, but also really empowering. I don't think responsibility is about blame. I think responsibility is about ownership. And I think that that is just so beautiful and so liberating. And I understand millennials and I understand the frustrations that come with being a millennial and feeling like things were done to you. But I think what we need to understand is that within what's been done to us, there's still freedom and there's still responsibility. And that is something that's never taken away. I have silly examples in which I kind of talk about this. In my book, I talk about Chad really briefly. You know, he's the guy we all know in high school who had his heart broken by his first girlfriend or whose parents got a divorce. And all of these are really valid painful experiences. But now Chad is in his mid-30s mistreating absolutely everyone he's dating. And the question goes, at what point is Chad responsible for the way he shows up? We can explain why he might be behaving the way he's behaving, but it doesn't justify it. And so with his freedom now, what is he choosing to do? I think it's a very powerful way, actually, to Mm. come at it, to put the power back into the hands of people who feel powerless. And I, I like that. There's a quote from your book that I think a lot of women can relate to. It's, I am asked to be many things, wife, student, therapist, friend, daughter, and sibling. But no one is asking me to be myself. And it wouldn't matter if they did, because I don't even know who that really is. You were 24 when you Mm -hmm. came to this realization, which I know is a time when so many of us feel lost and confused about who we are. But I got to say, I'm 59 and I relate. What is it about self that you think is so difficult? I think what's so difficult about the self is that we believe it's static And some of us believe that it's something that's kind of given, assigned to us, and then we need to go out and find it. It's like going through a closet, finding that one sweater, putting it on, being like, great, now I get to die in it. Like, this was the entire process. And I think what makes it difficult is that the self is so malleable, so fluid, and it's so easy to get disconnected by just engaging in roles, by just engaging in societal expectations. And I think for me, I felt like I was doing everything right. My gosh, like I was in grad school. I was doing really well. I had a community. I had a relationship. I was married at the time. And I was like, wow, checking off all the boxes and overachiever. And I think I was so surprised by a moment where I looked in a mirror and I couldn't recognize myself by waking up out of a daze and going, whose life is this? Because it 
it does not feel like it belongs to me. And I think one of the most surprising aspects of the self is that it's so easy to construct an inauthentic self almost passively, almost accidentally, almost well-intentionally, like, and then to wake up and realize how much harm you've done to yourself. You mentioned you went through a lot of struggles. What struggles? Can you just give us the short version of your story? Yeah, sure. So I was born in Bosnia right before the Bosnian War, and then we moved to Serbia, and then the Kosovo War and the NATO bombings happened. Um, then we immigrated to Canada, and so that was the first 10 years of my life. It was it was some of the worst of humanity, I would say, that I got to witness. It was a lot of lack of stability. It was a lot of threat. It was a lot of worry. I feel like my innocence was kind of taken away. And so I talk about that at the start. And in my 20s, I feel like I go through a lot of things that 20-year-olds go through. And in some instances, I feel like that was just as hard, if not harder. And being, you know, in relationships you shouldn't be in and trying to figure out who you are while pleasing other people. And so I feel like there was a vast array of experiences that kind of contributed to me writing this book. Do you think that the mid-20s are a particularly difficult time for people? What happens as we get into our 30s or 40s or 50s? I think the 20s are an interesting time because I think for most people, it's their first sense of autonomy. You know, it's like they're moved out of their parents' basement or, or bedrooms or whatever it is, and they're grasping who they are. I think they're starting to see like they have a lot of freedom to to kind of play with it. So for a lot of people, it's unnerving because there's a lot of freedom but I also think that it's new and no one's really expecting you to know in your 20s. Not truly. I think when you get into your 30s, 40s, 50s, that understanding that you don't know who you are hits a little different. <laughs> Because maybe you did know and now you don't. Well, in your 20s, chances are you almost never did. And this is your first time discovering that space that needs to be filled and created. Is it something that happens to you because you said that finding yourself is something that happens over and over again? Is it something that follows other things that happen in your life. I'm thinking about the weekend that I just had. I was fortunate enough to be invited to spend the weekend with a, a group of women in their 60s, mostly, and a couple even in their early 70s. And I got to say, these women knew exactly who they were, with the exception of maybe one or two who had just gone through a divorce or just gone through a loss or just discovered an illness. And I'm wondering if it's these outside forces or maybe it's the losses that really impact how we change as selves. Yeah. So I always change the terminology from finding ourselves to creating ourselves. And then I think that that speaks more to the context and the events that you're talking about. It's like if you're constantly creating and your creation depends on your context and how you want to express in that moment and how you're feeling in that moment, then everything around you plays a role. And I do think that a lot of people have their sense of self threatened when they go through a transition. And that can be a medical diagnosis. That can be giving birth. That can be going to your new job. And so I think the sense of self needs to be created, but also protected. And I think at some point, it just becomes so difficult to protect it depending on the threat. And some people have trauma 
come into their life. And that becomes really difficult because that tears down your sense of self. And for me, I lived through some really traumatic experiences really early on, but it wasn't later on in life. It was really early. And so what I think trauma did for me was put me in a self-preservation mindset rather than self-exploration, self-expression. And so it made me too scared to create my sense of self. All I looked for was survival. And I do think that some people go through that at different ages, at different stages in their life. And so for me, it was a big life event, but it doesn't always have to be for others. You write and talk about the concept of self-loss. Can you define that? And how is that different than depression? Sure, yeah. So self-loss is self-estrangement. It's lack of alignment, congruency. It's thinking that you're one thing behaving like you're another. I don't know if we've ever done that. We're like, I never thought I would do that. And then you do it. And then you go, oh, maybe I don't actually know myself well enough. And my other definition of self-loss is our failed responsibility to be ourself. Because we're constantly creating when you fail to create the way that you want to, that's deliberate, that's intentional, not perfect, but deliberate, intentional, then I think we can dip into self-loss if that becomes a chronic state of existence. And why does it seem to show up more in millennials and younger generations? That's a great question. I think there's some similarities in terms of disconnect, I think, is a really really important overlap between the two experiences. Disconnect from self, disconnect from others, disconnect from values, disconnect from preferences, disconnect from meaning. That that is the common thread there. And I think millennials, what's happening is we have more options and we should be happy about that. But Kierkegaard even talks about how freedom induces anxiety. We almost have too many options before it's like you do what your parent did or you know you were expected as a woman to I don't know be a secretary maybe in the 50s like there were limited options and I'm so glad that that's no longer how we function as a society but I think being like I can be anything and then if I'm unhappy that's fully on me that is horrifying because no one forced you to be a content creator no one forced you to be an accountant for the most part and so I think we have a lot more freedom and then also we have a lot more societal pressures of like how perfect your life should be. And social media plays a really important role in that. And it's quite detrimental. And so what we're doing is we're trying to curate our lives rather than live it. And we get lost in the curation. What you're describing, I think, is this sense of self-loss. But I don't want to leave the depression question hanging because clinical depression, as somebody who's seen it many times, it's something else. And I I would love to just talk about how do you know when you're going through this period of of self-loss and you can read a book, you can figure out strategies to cope and you really need help. Where's the differentiator? I think if you are living a life that is so incredibly painful where you don't love anything, including yourself, when you don't want to wake up in the morning, That is when we get help. And even if you go to a therapist and they go, you know what, I actually think this is more of an existential crisis, fine. But I think it would be so hard for us to differentiate within our own experience. So if you're feeling really down and you don't feel like life is worth living, 
I think it's really important to get professional help and figure out why that is and if there is depression and how they can best support you through that journey. Yeah, absolutely. And my listeners know, look, we are a financial podcast. We're going to get to the financial issues in just a few minutes, including the cost of therapy, which can be very expensive and how to find the help you need at a a price that you can afford. But before we get there, I wanted to talk about the four coping reactions that we use to deal with being hurt by someone. You write about distancing and overactivity, aggression and freezing. How can we recognize in ourselves when these are showing up in order to deal with them? Yeah. And I think this is where self-awareness practices really come in. And, you know, at the end of the day, if this is something you're trying to catch, you can go, what did I learn about myself? How did I cope today? If you have the list of four, you can go like, actually, I thought in this situation, I coped by removing myself or I coped by getting louder. And so just reflecting back on each day and then noticing a pattern can be a really tangible, practical way to do that. And I always tell people, you know, responding versus reacting. This is an important distinction. If you want to respond, give yourself a beat. If you're about to speak and you're at an important meeting or having an important conversation, take five to seven seconds that don't seem super awkward in the conversation to just check in, to be like, okay, is my heart pounding? Am I sweating? Do I want to bring up things from the past? Like, what is happening for you? And I think that can be a really interesting way to observe yourself, consciously observe yourself as you're in the situation as well. So can we just follow that example? Yeah. Because I think it's helpful for people to recognize how we deal with a situation where we're set back on our feet, right? Mm -hmm. And the ramifications of dealing in each of these ways. So let's say you're in a meeting and somebody else just took credit for your idea. And you are, because that happens all the time to women, you are not happy about this. What are the four ways of coping? How would they manifest themselves? And how do you deal with your, I know exactly what I would do, but how do you deal with them? How would they show up? Yeah. So withdrawing, is that the first one I've listed? Distancing. Yeah. You would just say nothing or you would just, you would leave the room maybe if you were like really upset, but you're like, I'm not going to make a scene. So you would just go get a cup of coffee. You would try to write an email and distract yourself probably wouldn't say anything. If you were overactive, you might try to fight it or you might try to give another idea on top of that idea as a way to show your worth. So maybe you can't take credit for that idea you already had, but maybe you had something like in your back pocket that you knew would be a good add-on. So in front of the boss, now you're like, what about we add this thing as a way to kind of prove your existence and your worth in that situation? Aggression? Aggressive. Uh, Yeah, that would be like getting confrontational. That's my idea. That's incredibly inappropriate. I can't believe you've done that. This is the third time you've stolen it. Can you please give me credit? Like that would be probably more aggression. And then freezing. I mean, that can also look like distancing. It really depends. But it's more about what's happening in your nervous system of like not having the ability to speak, feeling like your mind is blank feeling very threatened, maybe that you're going to get fired. And so it's more of an internal thing. But on the outside, you're just sitting there. We all hope that we have that supportive colleague sitting next to us who will say, 
I think that sounds an awful lot like what Sarah just said. But absent that colleague, after the five to seven second pause, what should we do? I think what's really helpful for me is to reset and go, oh my God, here are all the things I wish I could do, sure. And then to go, who am I and who do I want to be? And this person I want to be, how would they show up in this situation? And that's a bit of distancing from your current emotions, which can make us incredibly reactive. And so for me, it's important like, okay, Sarah that I want to be is articulate, is gracious, is firm, is assertive, asks for what she wants, but is not aggressive. Like, I'm not going to attack someone. And then to think to yourself, okay, what does that sound like now? So you first are giving yourself a blueprint of who you are, who you want to be, and then constructing something that you want to say. I love that. Can we just spend another moment on overactivity? We just had Elise Lunen on the podcast, and she was talking about women striving to be perfect by constantly doing things, layering on more and more doing. And I see myself in this. I don't say no enough. I I say yes far too much. What's your prescription for women who find themselves overdoing? Yeah. Someone who's overactive, they're still trying to prove something to someone. And that someone is either them or the people in that room. And my piece of advice is figure out what you're trying to prove and why. So much of what drives our decisions is things we haven't reflected on and it's beliefs, it's our insecurities. And I think we need to stop there as a woman being like, why do I feel I need to work twice as hard? Why do I feel like I need to prove myself in this moment? And if it's about taking ownership of your work and not letting people bully you, that's great. But if it's about not feeling good enough and like you have to prove yourself or prove something to someone, that's when I would really pause and reflect on like the woman I am, the woman I want to be is (laughs) self-assured. She knows her worth. So how would a woman like that act now? One of the things that you talk about is that you can have an unfulfilling job, but still have a meaningful life. And yet, I know a lot of people struggle with that in part because we just spend so much of our lives at work. Do you have a few tips for leveling the playing field there, making life more meaningful when you don't love your job, or even making your work life more meaningful when you don't love your job? Yeah, I think what's important is not to overcommit to one role as our entire identity. I think people are like, I am a teacher, I'm a lawyer, I'm a CEO. And so then that becomes their entire identity. So when things are not working out, when there is projects you're working on that don't have as much value, after a while, you feel like your life has no value. When in reality, you're so much more than the role you play. And so I think being able to zoom out and understand different roles, even if they don't take up as much time, even if they're not as significant, like how can you more holistically understand yourself? And then how can you make those roles more meaningful? How can you engage in them in a way that it has values? Work is a huge one. I don't think we talk about that enough in terms of like you spend more time at work than probably doing anything else. So if you're miserable, if you have no value in what you're doing, that is going to take a mental toll. That is going to be quite detrimental for your mental health. I talk about with my clients, maybe you don't like grocery shopping. Fine. 
You would feel pushed by life to go grocery shopping. But what you care about is nutrition. You care about your health. You care about your kid's health. And I would call that a pull. So find the pull in the push. Sometimes we can't change the fact that we need to go grocery shopping. But what we can change is the attitude and the framing. Instead of like, oh my God, I don't want to go grocery shopping. This is so boring. A waste of time. My husband should have, oh, everyone wants something different. We don't have enough money. All of it valid. Go like, I really value the fact I have the freedom to go grocery shopping. I really value the fact that I get to take care of my body and the health of my kids. And that reframe can make that activity a lot more meaningful now rather than something that you hate and wears you down. Love that. We are going to take a very quick break. Before we do that, I just want to remind everyone, if you haven't, check out the new podcast from Her Money. It's called How She Does It. And what you'll find in these conversations hosted by my friend Karen Feinerman is an intimate cocktail party style dialogue with some of today's most influential, most powerful women. So check it out. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Preparing for the unexpected tomorrow is what gives us the peace of mind to live a life of freedom today. Protecting your family is about so much more than just saving and investing. Having a conversation about your wealth is an important part of your protection puzzle. Explore your options with a complimentary wealth checkup. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney or call 833-304-PLAN. We are back with Sarah Kubrick. She's the author of the new book, It's On Me. So I promised everyone the money is coming, and here it comes. Therapy is expensive. The cost barrier makes it really tough for a lot of people to consider. In fact, in 2022, there was a survey from the folks at Very Well where eight in 10 people said they thought therapy was a good investment, but nearly half said they couldn't afford it. How important is therapy? And would you suggest that people figure out a way to prioritize it, even if they have to sacrifice other things? Or are there other ways to make it less expensive? I mean... This is a million-dollar question, isn't it? I do know that globally therapy is expensive, and I understand that it is something that feels almost like a privilege rather than a right, which I think is really sad because I think people should have access to psychotherapy, psychology, counseling. I don't push therapy on everyone. I'm not one of those therapists that's like, everyone needs a therapist. Do I think it's great? And even like a little checkup? Yeah. Do I think that there's lots of people who can form beautiful communities and read and journal and take tips and tools from podcasts that they listen to and Instagram therapists, whatever we are called nowadays? Yeah, I, I do think that there's a lot of people who can still do the work and not necessarily be in therapy. And then I think that there's individuals who are struggling a lot and really do need a mental health professional. And I think it's really disheartening when that's just not a possibility for everyone, depending on what your circumstances and how severe the symptoms might be or how much it's impacting you. That's when it starts to prioritize. I do think our mental health is a top priority. I'm not going to sit here and tell people to like, 
invest in therapy and don't eat food, but maybe, you know, you cut something, some social activities out that you enjoy doing if you feel like you really need that extra support or your mental health is starting to really impact your work and your family and your loved ones. There isn't a generalized answer for something like that. Yeah. And I I think just from the American perspective, if you have not called your health insurer and asked them or your benefits department at work, if you have a benefits department and asked, what is available to me? How do I navigate these waters? Because health insurance can be difficult. How do I navigate these waters in the most cost-effective way? Do you have any suggestions? How do I find an in-network provider? And then just from personal experience, I do want to say, like, I know people who've gone into therapy and been in therapy for many, many years, but I've used it myself at times of crisis, almost like a short-term fix. I've gone for periods of six to eight weeks, which is definitely not going to be enough time to do Freudian analysis, but it was enough time to deal with the problem that I was going through in my life right then. And so I I do think that there are ways to get help with whatever is going on in your life in maybe unorthodox ways that you might not have thought of at the beginning. Look, when it becomes something that is life-threatening, that's the only time that I'm very encouraging of like, yes, it costs a lot, but your life is worth so much more. And so I do think it depends. But yeah, for some people, they needed crisis intervention. They needed a couple tips. They needed a couple tools, you know, relied on spiritual leaders or mentors or their family members. And they had the support that they needed. And I think that that's wonderful. And I think the issue nowadays is so many people are lonely and so many people feel isolated that me being like, hey, find a community almost feels as difficult as me saying, find the money for that. Like, I understand that none of these solutions are easy. I understand that all of this is incredibly difficult. And it's sad that our system has kind of failed us, that this is not something that's, that's available for everyone. You made a lot of tough choices in your own life. You sacrificed a lot of things. And I know that you went through the process of getting rid of most of your stuff. Mm -hmm. And I mean the vast majority of your stuff. You say you could live out of a suitcase. Can you talk about this? Was this a money decision? Was this a life decision? Was it some combination of the two? Yeah, this is a great question. For me, it was a change in lifestyle. So I started traveling more. It was also a very emotional decision in terms of I realized how much meaning I placed on things and how much safety I thought I derived from material things that weren't actually there. So I was just cluttering my life. And there was something, there was that moment, you know, when you're like, I'm going to spring clean my house. (laughs) It's like everything's going to be clean because you feel like this need to cleanse, to purge. And I think I felt that. And so it was a bit emotional. It was also just trying to accommodate my travels coming forth. And then I do think it's a great financial and environmental move. I mean, I still, when I buy something, someone knows like, oh, she's buying this, which means she's replacing. She's either donating something or she has worn it out to the point where it like can't be worn anymore. And so I also think it kind of prevents me from creating meaning and attachment to material things, but it does save money. I think that that's a really wonderful thing when you realize how little you actually need. What brought you to that point? Yeah, so my ex-husband and I decided to officially get a divorce. We were already separated. 
And I was having pretty bad panic attacks. I was in grad school and I decided I was going to take a semester off and just go back to Serbia where a lot of the trauma started and just kind of figure myself out. And I think when I was packing, I also realized my parents were kind of moving and I felt really unanchored, which was not a great feeling at that point. And I went, okay, I can't even store my things, but which of these things do I actually need? And how many of these things remind me of things I don't want to be reminded of? And so I think that's where that came. It was kind of like the perfect storm, but it was me getting ready to go to Berlin for a trip. As we wrap this up and we talk about decisions like the decision to get rid of belongings, you say that small, meaningful decisions reveal who we are more than big existential decisions. Are these the type of decisions you're talking about? And how can we use decisions like these and the information that we get from them to figure out who we are and decide more about who we want to be? Yeah, great question. I think what I'm talking about is being really intentional and realizing that there's no neutral self. So whatever you choose to do to save your money, to spend your money, to become a minimalist, to buy that house, all of that shapes who you're becoming. And either that's an authentic self or that's an inauthentic self. There's no such thing as middle neutral self. And I think that's where people are like, well, I'll do this. It's of no consequence. And what I'm trying to say in that passage is everything you do has a consequence. And that's really fun, too. Yes, it's a lot of responsibility, but that means you're shaping and molding and adjusting. And that's great. And so what I'm saying is, like, instead of banging your head against a wall, constantly be like, who am I? Who do I want to be? Make those little decisions. And then, as you said, you'll get feedback. You'll do something and you'll go, huh, that felt really good. That fits. And I think if I didn't like minimalism, I would have bought more stuff. But I'm like here 10 years later and still living a pretty minimal life. And I was like, wow, that really fits. And I didn't even know about the concept. I didn't know if it would work. That's great. And then there's things that you'll try and be like, nope, that's not it. And so part of all of this is trial and error and being open to being human and being open to making mistakes, but then also being aware enough when you make them. So it's not just about, I'm making a bunch of mistakes. It's actually using them to your advantage to get you a bit closer to creating the sense of self that you want to be. Sarah Kubrick, the book is It's On Me. Where can we find more about you? Sure. Sarah Kubrick is my website. So you can find out more about me. Millennial.therapist is my Instagram, which is probably the platform I'm most engaged in. And then I do have a Substack. I have two, actually. One is Notes from My Phone, and that's more psychotherapeutic content there. It's free. It's weekly. And then the Phenomenological Society, which is more the existential type of information that I co-created. And so if you're into psychotherapy or existentialism, there you go. Thank you so much for this conversation. It was really interesting and I think will help a lot of people. Thank you so much. Before we dive into our mailbag, a quick word from our sponsors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dive into the heart of crime with Foul Play Crime Series. Immerse yourself in the most perplexing cases where each twist and turn is more baffling than the last. 
With riveting storytelling and detailed analysis, Foul Play brings the unsolved and unexplained to life, captivating your imagination. Listen to Foul Play Crime Series now, where every story is a puzzle waiting to be solved. And we are back with our mailbag. My daughter, Julia Chatsky, is joining me. Let's answer some questions. All right. Our first question today comes to us from Carol. She writes, Dear Jean and the Her Money team, I'm planning to retire in July 2024. I'm a 62-year-old widow and will take my late husband's Social Security first and allow mine to grow until I'm 70. Should I wait until Jan 2025 to start collecting? My thinking is that if I wait and my income for 2024 will be less and perhaps I can get a better rate when I buy my health insurance on the exchange and, of course, I want to minimize my tax bill. I will also have two small pensions, which will together be about 1200 per month. Should I wait to start collecting the pension as well? I am an Edelman client and will certainly ask my advisor, but I'm interested in your opinion. I'm enjoying the variety of guests and topics on your podcast, and I hope to hear from you soon. Thanks for writing, Carol. And yeah, you should absolutely ask your advisor at Edelman. They have a variety of tools that they can use. They plug in your details and they can tell you specifically when to start taking Social Security. And they can also balance out your tax situation because you're going to be dealing with minutia that has to deal with taxes and your Medicare premiums, not until you're 65, but that's not so far in the future. The reason that that Carol referenced 2025 is that from the year 2021 through 2025, some changes in the laws relating to the pandemic included provisions that made health insurance more affordable when you bought it through the exchange. It increased the size of tax credits and it eliminated the income limit, the upper income limit for subsidies. And those subsidies are really, really generous. We know that right now through the exchanges across the country, there are about 16 million people who are enrolled in health plans through the exchanges. And nine out of 10 of them are receiving subsidies. And for most of them, those subsidies covered most of their premiums. The average premium in 2023 was about $600 a month, and the average subsidy was more than $500 a month. So it it was really, really generous. And for that reason, I would wait until you qualify based on your income for that and take advantage of that subsidy because it is real money that we're talking about here. But again, I would also just ask your advisor to run through the scenarios to show you what it looks like. And that's one of the benefits of having an advisor, that they are able to scenario plan with you and look out into the future to see what the moves you make right now are going to do for you and to you for the longer term. So thanks so much for writing, Carol. Next one, Jules? Yeah, let's get into it. Our next question comes to us from an anonymous listener. She writes, Hello, Jean and team. 
I've been a longtime podcast listener and have valued all the information and advice your team provides. I cannot thank you enough. I'm hoping you can offer some words of encouragement and direction as I'm feeling very stuck. Some background info. I'm a 56-year-old single woman and very far behind with my retirement savings. Despite a healthy annual salary of $150,000 per year, I only have about $250,000 in retirement savings. Half of my retirement savings is in a 403B with my current employer through a TIAA in a target date fund with a planned retirement target age of 70. The other half is in a rollover IRA with Fidelity in a mix of index funds, about 70% stocks and 30% bonds. I own my condo, though I know paying it off before retirement is well out of my reach. I owe about $440,000 on it. The property was purchased in 2020 with a 2.8% 30-year fixed mortgage. I have no children nor any other family to whom I am concerned about leaving an inheritance. My biggest thing holding me back is my debt of about $60,000. I know I would benefit from meeting with a fee-only CFP to at the very least look over my 403B and rollover IRA and options available to me to ensure I'm in the best mix of funds and give me some guidance. However, I am absolutely paralyzed by fear because I just keep feeling like I cannot trust anyone. I want to learn and be involved, but my anxiety over money is so great that I'd love to find a trustworthy person to just handle it. While I know those with an interest in managing their money can do so independently and avoid the fees, why would it be so wrong for those of us who want the help to pay reasonable fees in exchange for some peace of mind? Any advice on how to best move forward? Thank you so much for all you do. Anonymous in Chicago. I feel like this is a question that I am seeing more and more. This idea of not knowing who to trust. I write a column for AARP. I think some of you who are listening know that. I've been writing it for a long time. And I just published one with a woman who was very, very much like you. She knew she wanted help. She didn't particularly want it on an ongoing basis, but she wanted somebody to look at what she had done and tell her whether she was on the right track. And she just couldn't get herself to trust anybody. And so we went through, she and I went through this process, which was very similar to the process that I went through with my mom, with Grandma Julia, after Grandpa died. When my father died, my mother felt like she lost her sounding board. She always had managed the money, most of the money, but she would run all the decisions by my dad, and they would talk about them together and and come to the final decision together. And, and she just felt like she, she lost that. And so she wanted a financial planner to be somebody that she could talk with about these things. And so we went through the process, like I did with this woman for AARP, of interviewing financial advisors. And that's what I would suggest you do. I would go through the process of pulling together a short list of advisors and talking to them about what they would do for you, how they would do it, what they think your savings rate needs to be, how they're going to get you on track for your retirement, and how much it's going to cost you for that relationship. I think that you should get a free retirement review from our sponsor. I think you should call our sponsor, Edelman Financial Engines, and talk to them about an initial meeting and a review of what's going on. But I 
think you should talk to other people as well. There is an organization called the XY Planning Network. Those planners often charge in different ways. They'll they'll charge not only by assets under management, but some of them charge uh, a monthly fee for their services. Some of them charge a fee for the plan. So I would look there as well. They are an organization that was started by a guy named Michael Kitsis, who is a, a well-known financial advisor and a, a well-known writer on retirement. And I've, I've been impressed by the advisors in that network. And I would also ask any friends, teachers like you or people like you who've got I'm just assuming that you are a teacher because you've got your money with TIAA and a 403B, and that tends to tends to be a community of teachers, but I apologize if I got that wrong. But I would talk to your colleagues, people who have similar financial situations to you, and just ask them if they have people that they work with that they like. Get your list together, three to four people, schedule meetings with all of them, listen to what they have to say. You're going to learn a lot just from these initial meetings that are, by the way, going to cost you nothing, and then decide how to move forward. It is not unreasonable to hire somebody to do this for you if you don't want to do it yourself. In fact, it's the responsible thing to do. So thank you for writing in and good luck with the uh, search. Let me know if I can help in any way. And if you have any other money-related questions, we'd love to hear from you. Just send them our way by emailing us at mailbag at hermoney.com. Thanks so much, Jules. Thanks so much for having me. And now we're going to take a quick break. Hey there, listeners. It's Nima Gobier. I'm the co-host of MindShift, the podcast where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I don't teach math. I don't teach reading. I teach people. You'll hear from teachers, parents, researchers, and students as we uncover innovative approaches in and out of the classroom. It holds a lot about how we want students and young people to move through the world, how we want to set them up for success. Find MindShift wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. But before I get to your money tip of the week, can I just talk for a sec about my friend Karen Feinerman, who, by the way, is fun, hilarious, and really so smart. I want you to get to know her, and there are two great ways that you can do that. First, check out her podcast. It's called How She Does It. She is sitting down for these amazing cocktail party style conversations with incredible women, women who are sitting at the intersection of money and power. And she is getting their stories, their backgrounds, their tips for success, The idea for this podcast came out of a dinner party at Karen's home that I attended with women like this, and I just wanted to be a fly on the wall for more of these conversations. That's why we launched it. So it's called How She Does It with Karen Feinerman. Make sure to subscribe. And if you're looking to specifically learn more about investing, you can get to know Karen and her secret superpower that way too. She's a professional investor. That's what you see her talking about on CNBC. And she and I, for the last more than a year, have been teaching hundreds of women how to invest online, on Zoom. We do it every other Monday night 
Our investing club for women is called Investing Fix. Check it out at investingfix.com. Now, here's your money tip. If you have been car shopping recently, you've noticed prices going up and up and up. No, it's not in your head. The cost to own a vehicle has risen steadily in recent years. In fact, according to AAA, the average cost of car ownership has increased more than 13% since last year alone. Yeah, you're doing the math correctly. That's about $1,000 a month. So what's responsible for these higher prices? Well, the price of the car themselves, of course, but also the increased cost of financing, maintaining, and insuring a new car. But the good news is there are some steps that you can take to bring the cost down. For starters, think about what you really need in a car. Yeah, you may want a pickup, but it costs more to drive than a compact. So consider going with the smaller car and renting a truck every once in a while if you really need one. There is also the issue of car insurance. We hear about drivers skipping insurance altogether, even though states require it because they can no longer afford their premiums. Don't do that. For help with your own premium, get quotes from several insurers and ask what steps they can take to lower your costs, like raising your deductible or bundling with your homeowner's insurance. Last but not least, if you really want to reduce expenses, think about getting rid of your car, especially if you live in an urban area with easy access to public transportation, bike lanes, and even Zipcar. Who doesn't like combining a commute and a workout? Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Also, take a minute, leave us a review. We really love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Edelman Financial Engines. Her Money is produced by Haley Pascalides. The show is mixed and mastered by CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.